Well, welcome. It is good to have the rain. As Mike said, it uh, greened things up, which would be a little bit nicer. But uh, we, uh, we've started a series actually last Sunday, and I just began the introduction of it. Uh, comes out of John 17, and I want to read that text here. It's kind of our core, really, passage that we want to emphasize uh, here over the next few weeks or even a couple months here. But John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, and this is they is us, okay? He's praying for us here in the future, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This is a prayer in the upper room before Jesus goes to the cross. And he prays that we would be one like the Father and the Son are one. Now, my contention is, is that oftentimes this kind of oneness I don't know if we really can understand it, and, and maybe we don't appreciate it. No, even at times, I'm not sure that churches look at this prayer and go, we need to have this. So maybe it's not sought after in many churches of today. But I said this last week. I said a church can have, it can have great teaching. It can have great worship. A church can draw a large crowd. It can have the best programs for adults and kids. But none of that guarantees that the group is one. You can have all those things and a group is still not marked by oneness like the Father and the Son. So we need to discover really what oneness is, and we're going to keep unpacking that over the next few weeks. But I, I need to begin with a question here this morning. But what keeps us from understanding this biblical oneness? Uh, Deanna and I were married in the mid-70s, and um, many of you weren't even born then. But, it, but it's interesting. The it was, 70s was an interesting area. I don't know if you know that the Vikings went to the Super Bowl three times that in that 10-year period. Anybody remember that? Worship music styles really came into vogue. The new worship styles that we sing were developed in the 70s. Remember, it only takes a spark. Can you fill in the, the blanks to that one? Yes, some of you know, and some of you go, what? Uh, okay, what, what song is that? But there was another phenomena in the 70s that was really interesting. And I want to put a picture on the screen of what, what it is, and it's this. The salad bar. It started really in the 50s, but it wasn't, it was kind of in the mid-70s and on into the 80s and the early 90s that the salad bar was this great thing that restaurants offered. And it became so popular, but the focus of the salad bar really was geared toward those people that ate lunch out often. So businesses, you know, in the cities, Minneapolis, and all of those areas, they'd offer the salad bar at lunchtime. And why? Well, it was advertised as inexpensive. It was healthy. It was convenient. It didn't take a lot of time. It was the perfect lunch for busy people. 
And so kind of the mantra of the day was eat more salad. But the salad bar, there's a concept there that actually it's an issue that fights against oneness, not the literal salad bar. Let me, here's one of those things that fight against oneness for your notes if you're following the bulletin. We desire spiritual nurturing and development to be quick and convenient and with little effort. Just like a salad bar. The source that I got that illustration said called it salad bar Christianity. You see, far too many people approach spiritual development within their souls like a salad bar. In their pursuit of God, they want it easy, they want it tasty, and they sure don't want to have it take up too much time. Because time is so precious, you know. But we can also apply that to the relationships within the body of Christ. We want them to be quick. We want them to be convenient. And we sure don't want them to take too much time. Dallas Willard is an author who writes on spiritual formation and came across what he quoted this week. And look at what it says. We have counted on preaching and teaching to form faith in the here and on faith to form the inner life and the ordered behavior of the Christian. But for whatever reason, this strategy has not turned out well. The result is that we have multitudes of professing Christians that well may be ready to die, but obviously are not ready to live and can hardly get along with themselves, much less others. Let me go deeper here in the introduction. There's another term I want to introduce you to. And this one came in the mid-90s. It was some books that I read, and even when I was at Bethel, we talked about this. And, and I'll put it on the screen. It's the word, the nominal Christian. And I don't know if you know that term, but this is a group of people who believe God, believe in the work of Jesus. And for the most part, most of them would say they've had a conversion experience in their faith, but they believe that they can be spiritual and not have relationships with other believers and even with the church of today. They don't really believe it's necessary for their spiritual growth. But there's a second term that's actually in vogue that's really come about in about the last 10 years. And, and this is a second term here, the nuns. I don't know if you know of this group. I think I've mentioned it before. But it's a group that have now no religious affiliation. And these people, when you go to a hospital, you know, when you, you, you fill something out on a form and they ask, what religion are you? What they do is they check that box, none. This is the fastest growing group in the United States. So these groups, two groups, actually are growing, the nuns and the nominal Christians. Now, the interesting thing is that oftentimes what's happening is the nominal Christian is sliding into the nun category. But why are they growing? Why have they walked away from the church? Why have they walked away from relationships within the body of Christ? And, and I came across a real quite pointed uh, quote from the salad bar illustration, the resource that I used. And he said this, We offer lots of choices of programs with low commitment. We have tapes available so that busy people can get fed on the go. Communicate that Bible studies in small groups and service and giving are extras and that you can have a pay-as-you-go mentality. 
We recognize that people are going to feed themselves spiritually from lots of different churches, maybe a Bible study that fits the schedule at the Baptist Church, a worship that they like at the Presbyterian Church, and a support group at Calvary Chapel. Thus, salad barred Christianity is born. Now let me connect that back to John 17, this prayer that Jesus prayed. See, this prayer that we would be one, just like the Father and I are one. Oneness will never happen if we live our lives, our spiritual lives, and relationships with a salad bar approach. Matter of fact, I end up doing lots of marriage counseling And I find that even in marriage relationships, this idea of two people becoming one, it's the goal in the relationship. But couples can have a great desire to be one, but for whatever reason, too many take a salad bar approach even in their relationship. We'll become one if it's convenient, if it doesn't cost much in terms of money or time, and, and they think that they can do it on the fly without being intentional. And oneness doesn't work that way. But this is the same with the oneness within the relationships needed within a church. And the irony is, is that people want relationships, but people still want a salad bar approach to it. A guy by the name of William Hendricks, he interviewed thousands of people who left the church, those nuns and the nominal Christians. And he came, down, came up with Two reasons, kind of core reasons, themes that developed. And he said this, number one, when people leave the church, they start off never with the idea that they're leaving God. They walk away, they don't think that they're going to leave God. But then interesting, number two here, when he interviewed these people, when people leave the church, they're usually deeply disappointed in the church because people in the church weren't religious enough. And they couldn't find a sense of community. Interesting, isn't it? So there's this catch-22 within leaderships of churches of today. On one hand, people are leaving the church because they can't find deep community. They're not, they don't feel love. They can't get, connect with other people. On the other hand, they want it with a salad bar mentality. That's the tension. So let me throw you a hard reality for your notes. Low investment toward relationships will never obtain oneness within a church family. And and let me put up another scripture there. Uh, This came to me as I was studying, and I go, Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told the disciples, if any would, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The application of that applies to relationships as well. It really extinguishes low investment attitudes. See, if we claim to love Jesus and follow him, investment toward other people must also be true. But low investment and becoming one, they just won't come together. But also catch this, when I say low investment here, we need to clarify that, and we're going to do that more, But because we need to really agree, what does that mean? What does oneness mean? What does investment in a relationship look like? And 
recognize that I think for some people, coming to church once a month, talking to people in the foyer is high investment. And I would probably disagree with that. But there's another issue beyond the salad bar approach as well that oftentimes hurts the oneness in the church family. It overlaps with it, and, and let me just begin again with a bit of a story. Deanna and I lived in Vancouver back in 1979. We moved there. We lived 11 years there. And one of the differences that we found on the West Coast there is people were far more private than they are in the Midwest. When they would build a house, they would put the fence up first, get the shrubbery going, and literally you wouldn't see in each other's yards. We bought a house, and on one side, the shrubbery was about 20 feet high. No one would even look in each other's backyards. And it was very, we found it very difficult to get to know people, even our neighbors. But really, that is symbolic of a mindset that's taking place in all of the United States is that people want, and even in the spiritual sense, to be private. Stay away from me. And here's again the contradiction of the church. Don't get too close to me spiritually, but I want a relationship. Do you feel the tension there? And there are consequences to the privatization of our lives. Um, Mother Teresa came over once to the United States. If you don't know, she, she is a Catholic nun, uh, a missionary to Calcutta, serving really in that poverty all of her life. I think she passed away, I think it was 97. And years ago, though, she came to the United States and someone just asked her and said, what do you think of the affluence in the United States? And she shared with this person and others that of all the countries that she had visited, that the United States is the poorest in the world. Because, she said, America suffers from the poverty of loneliness. And she made this statement, loneliness is, is the leprosy of the West. And I go, that's really good. But see, that ties into our spirituality. Stay away. Keep away from people. Privacy, though, is, is what's is kind of the name of the game. But you know, where does privacy come from? And I would argue it's a value of something deeper that's been ingrained in us. And if your notes, I said it this way. We, we have idolized individualism. That's where privacy comes from. See, Mother Teresa said the poverty of loneliness, it comes from the quest for the individual. And I believe that there's an unbiblical worldview that puts emphasis on the solidarity of a person. And that has crept into the church. And the I is more important than the we. And this, this view says that we're created as individuals and we must live independently as possible in order to be fully human. There was a book in this that, that uh, did some research in this area called Habits of the Heart. He was a sociologist named Robert Bella. 
And he studied the core values of people, and he came to a couple of conclusions of some cherished values. And let me put them on the screen. And he said this, it is utilitarian individualism, which if it works for me, then it's good. And then he gave another one, expressive individualism. If it fulfills me or satisfies me, then it is good. And that is our culture of the day. And as that crept into the church, see, and we come to believe that this is what freedom is about. It's individualism is the chief goal of freedom. And when that gets ingrained in the church, you understand that it fights against oneness, community, loving each other, deep relationships. And this issue of individualism, I think the early church would have looked at it and they would have been repulsed by it. See, we want the freedom to just be left alone. But it doesn't take much digging to realize that the commitment to individualism has a breakdown in community and the culture at large, and and it doesn't escape from the church of becoming one. One resource said this as I was reading this week. He said, there are more people bowling than ever but far fewer leagues. There are more people that want a good education, but no one is joining the PTA. And people want spiritual things, but they're not joining a group called the church. Why bother? I can do it alone. Let me put up the prayer again from John 17. Look at this closely. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. He prays for this three times, one before, the verse before this, but that even as we are one in them, and then look at that last phrase, that they may become perfectly one. This has kind of been the introduction up to this point. And here's where I got to start digging a little bit more, and it's going to get, I warn you, a little more complicated. And turn if you got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter one this morning. I, I want to dig here a bit because these first two chapters sets the foundation of the issue of oneness. And there's some truths here that are absolutely critical in terms of understanding what oneness is. And, and, and let me just state it this way, this idea of being made in the image of God. And if you got your notes of this important truth, I said it this way. The degree that one understands and embraces the truth that we're made in the image of God, it's the way God created us, will dictate our understanding and our ability to embrace oneness with other people. Being made in the image of God and oneness are linked together deeply and strongly. Now, if we don't believe it, I think it it impacts our relationships, our loving other people, that command to love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're never captured by this, of what it means to be made in the image of God, we get sucked into individualism. And it becomes the dominant value of our lives. So it's going to be a little more complicated as we walk through these next couple of weeks. And then we'll try to apply it more. But look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. That's where I want to begin here. And God said, 
Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and with the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the skies and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. Here was the fifth day. He, cre- he creates the creatures of this world and he said, It's good. Now let me put one of those creatures on the screen for you. Killed a couple of those this week. Did you notice what their purpose is? Be fruitful and multiply. That was God's command. So for a mosquito to obey the commands of God, these little buggers are to make more little buggers. Do we catch that? And he said, it is good. See, creatures were to populate the earth, and that was their purpose. But now we come to day six. Look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now you notice a couple of things here. We'll stop here in verse 28. It says, Be fruitful and multiply, just like the creature world. And then he gives a distinct command. Subdue creation. Have dominion over it. See, that's another step beyond just multiplying. But here's where I I need to jump to verse 31 here for the sake of time. Verse 31 says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now here's where you need to notice the difference between day five and day six. Let me put that on the screen the next slide. Day five. And God saw that it was good. And day six said that God said it was very good. If you ever caught the difference there in that text. The sixth day, man was created, and all of a sudden God says, and they would have phrased it, good, good. Okay, that he said it is very good. See, it reveals something about being made in the image of God. And it's some of the substance of what that really means. And again, if you're taking notes, I said it this way. The value of mankind is higher than the creature world because we're made in the image of God. See, now now I also want to point out one thing. If you go back in the account, you'll notice even when they created day and night, God said it was good. But when he created mankind, it was very good. Why? Because we're created in his image. But let me again remind you and state a couple things that we're not when it means to be made in the image of God. It doesn't mean that we're divine, as some people want to contend. Not at all. And it's not referring to physical image in that sense, okay? So you just got to clarify that as well. 
But let me just again keep going through and point out some of the obvious things in terms of what it means to be made in the image of God. That next bullet there. We're made to make moral choices and have rationality, meaning we think. See, we're created with a will to choose. We have a mind that reasons in a profound way that connects what we do, the choices that we make, with even morality. We think. We decide what's good, what's bad. See, all of that, God thinks. He's rational. Let me give you another bullet there. We have the capacity to love in relationship. Because God is love, we were created to love others in relationship, just like himself. We catch that. Now the challenge after the fall is where do we give our love? Do we give it just to ourselves or do we give it to others, other people in relationship? But let me give you another bullet there. We now exist for eternity. Do we catch that? All of a sudden, boom, we're on this earth, but now we go into eternity with God. God is eternal in that sense. But here's where I need to push it even farther from this passage and go a little deeper here. That next bullet we are representatives and image bearers of God in this world. And and this is a little bit more complicated because what does it mean to be a representative or an image bearer in this world? Now now here's where we've got to understand the the ancient world. It was very different than us today. When a king conquered a land, he wouldn't necessarily go to that land at all. He would send a representative who would oftentimes, he would either have a piece of paper with his image on it, sometimes a ring he would have, or a statue of the image of the king. And what did that mean? It meant that as he came in, that representative came into a land, that he had the same power and authority as the king. To say it different then we're image bearers of the eternal kings. We're representatives of God. Even in the Genesis account here, exercising dominion is a part of being God's representative person, a representative of over creation. That reflects God's character. But matter of fact, this phrase, image, this actually is referred to Jesus as well. Look at Colossians 1.15, referring to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So here's, I catch this. We are, whether we like it or not, we are God, we are revealing God to the world because we are made in his image. We carry the image and represent him to the world. Now understand, we, we got to stop and say, sin distorted that. It, it, it broke it in a very distinct way. But when, under, catch this, when Jesus says, I pray that they would be one, 
that oneness reflects or is the image of who God is. Do we, do we catch that? Oneness in the Trinity, this is Trinity stuff. They're in relationship. It's an attribute of who God is. He is in community. He is one. And we are made in that image to represent that image to the world in a relational way. It's why Jesus prays for oneness. Now, how does this apply to the church? Because it is very practical as we represent, bear the image of God. I want to show you Philippians chapter 2. And it actually implies this in John 17. But here, Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, and he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Folks, that's the opposite of oneness. He's kind of going after this church going, you guys got to love each other. You got to become one. But then look what he says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light in the world. The church is to represent who God is, to shine back into a fallen world. But if no oneness within the body of Christ, it's not reflecting the relationship within the Trinity of three and one, of this deep union of within the Godhead. We are representing that to the world, and when it works, we are shining into the world. And Paul was kind of chastising this church for disputing and grumbling. See, we get back to this where we got to work at becoming one. But the challenge is we often approach a church and we go, it's about my needs, it's about my joy, it's supposed to feed me, it's supposed to be a salad bar for me. And then you throw individualism in that. And even in our witness, we look and go, I'm witnessing for Jesus. And you go, that really wouldn't have been the early church. There would have been a corporate sense all along that we witness, and especially in our relationships with each other. See, oneness, community, the family of God, that was what God always intended to represent the triune God. Because he's Trinity, which is community. The Father, Son, and the Spirit exist in community. And the early church, when you talked about representing God, one of the things that were different, they were known as a people. The idea of living apart from the community just was so anti. They just, it was repulsed by that. Matter of fact, don't give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing. See, this idea of one, so when in the ancient early church days, if you were identified as a Christian, it wasn't just your relationship with God, it was your relationship in community. Remember the term, oh, you're a part of the way. You're a part of those Christians. You catch the attitude of that was going on. It was reflecting the oneness, and it's why Christianity exploded as the church became one, and they were so distinct, and they became stars that shined in the universe. 
you catch just a taste here that the Trinity is one in a relationship. Father, Son, and he prays for us, be one just like you and I, Father, are one. Do you catch the depth of that? I'm going to ask the elders to come up. We're going to celebrate communion. But even communion, i, I, I got to point this out, was very much a group event. It wasn't about Jesus and me at all. Now, we practice open communion, so if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you uh, to, to take it with us here. But let me just read you from 1 Corinthians 11. But I don't think I have this on the screen. But I read a text all the time. Oh, I do have it here. Look at this. Look at what it says. This is right before the instructions. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What do you have? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Look at this phrase. Or do you despise the church of God? The church of God. And humiliate those who have nothing. See, Paul was saying, this is supposed to be an us, and you're not acting like us. And then what shall I say? And shall I command to you this? No, I will not. And then he understands, he begins, and he goes into what we actually repeat, and we'll do that even this morning. See, communion is about us. It represents us in Christ and what he's done for us so deeply. Guys, I want you to hand out the bread. Take that and hand that out. And again, I remind you that you would just hold that bread and that we would take it as a symbol of our unity in Christ. But see, this points to us loving each other and representing Christ in this world, and we shine like stars in the sky.